If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, let me share with you, we are going to have Amy Brin on the podcast today. She is the CEO of the Child Neurology Foundation and is going to be having an amazing conversation with us about ways that collaboration can help your nonprofit grow. So let me share with you just a little bit about Amy as well as about the Child Neurology Foundation. I've already mentioned that Amy is their CEO. She is actually a nurse by training. And before joining CNF, she served as a national consultant building systems of care for children and youth living with very special health care needs. I will also share with you that during the time that she's been there, she's been there about eight years, give or take a few months. During the time that she has been there, CNF has grown from a $1 million budget to a more than $3.5 million budget. And she credits her collaborative efforts with this growth. So that's why we really wanted to have this conversation today, because I know lots of people and organizations are trying to figure out both how to grow and also how to build collaborations that will help them grow. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dolph. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chit chat. Of course, of course. So, uh, you know, I think just the best place to start is what did collaboration look like at CNF when you started about eight years ago? It didn't. There was none. None, none at all. None. Uh. Uh-uh. The organization at that point had been around for about 14 years and really, you know, had some success, but uh, kind of had taken a kitchen sink approach in the recent years, kind of trying to be all things to all people. Obviously, serving the child neurology community, the needs are incredible because we're talking about one in five children in the United States. So 20% of our country's children live with a neurologic condition. And it wasn't working. I mean, financially, it wasn't working. Reputation-wise, it wasn't working. Impact-wise, it wasn't working. And so our board really uh, held up a mirror to itself and said, do we even need to still be in existence? Because the landscape had changed so much. So many single disease-focused advocacy organizations um, had come into the space to help support these families. And 
the board was like, let's just have an honest conversation. If it's not working, maybe we don't need to be here anymore. And what led out of that conversation was there was no unifying voice. There was no convening presence in the child neurology landscape that, number one, advocated for all children living with neurologic conditions because there's commonality in that lived experience and those pain points that these families and, and the clinicians that care for them are having. And couldn't at this time, couldn't there be a model of collaboration that actually brought all these stakeholders together to make change in the areas that were all feeling the pain? And I was just a wackadutical enough to say, yeah, I'll do it. Let's let's try it out. I mean, why not take it for a spin? And if it fails, it fails. We're not going to be any <laughs> any different than the posture we're in now. And if we if we can make this work, um, imagine the change that we could create for these children and these families. So you took the job knowing this was the planned strategy, but not a current strategy. No, I mean, I took the job. <laughs> Because I needed a job. Okay, okay. And and I didn't know even, I mean, I'll be very transparent. I didn't do my due diligence before to really understand even the state of the state. And so this was evolving like in real time. I mean, I took the job in September. This conversation happened in October. Oh, wait a minute. So you took the job and then suddenly in your first or one of your first board meetings, there's a conversation, should we just even cease operating? A thousand percent. It was my very first board meeting. And so when you walked away from that board meeting, what were you thinking? <laughs> They're crazy. <laughs> and I'm crazier too. No, you know what? I think there's different appetites and flavors of CEOs. And mine is, I like to create change. I see opportunity before I see, you know, the pain points. And I believe probably because of my clinical background, very front in my brain is always the avalanche of needs that these children and families face. And so that opportunity to create something that could attack those needs in a different way excited me. Now, did I did I really understand the financial implications of that decision? No. But you look back and you're like, that sure motivated me to get to work. Yeah. And so again, just so I understand, so at the end of that October board meeting, was there this sense, okay, we're going to have a more collaborative strategy or was it we're going to continue these conversations? We're going to continue these conversations. What The one thing that came out of that immediate board meeting was a revised mission statement where we got laser focused about what our North Star was, which was going to be children and families primarily, secondly, supporting the clinicians. And we were going to do that through education, support services, and something. And that something ended up being we were going to be a convener. Got it. And so that that came out probably... Three to six months after that, I figured out that that could be a role we could play. Mm -hmm. Share with me how you brought your board along on that journey. So you said, okay, three to six months, I figured out that's a role we could play. Clearly, like you, your board came with you on it. So how did you bring your board along? Well, I want to first say that I was working at the time with an incredible physician leader named Don Shields. And Don is like the grandfather. Like when he gets behind something, it pretty much is going to happen. The organization was in such dire straits. He and I were meeting twice a week at that time. And he was in, he was willing to be in the foxhole with me. So he was seeing what the reality was, but what I was where I was trying to shoot. And he got behind it. And he really was the one, he planted the seed in my head about convening. I operationalized it differently. But what he said 
So Don Shields is credited for really standing up the first comprehensive epilepsy center in our country for children out at UCLA. And from that clinical experience, he really talked about how he used the term nexus point. There is no nexus of bringing children, families, patient advocates, clinicians, industry researchers together. And he just said it like that. And when I hear that, I think collaboration and collaboration needs to start with really truthful conversation. So I think of convening. And it was really, he and I kind of hit on it. Um, the other thing I will say is this, there was a big misstep that the foundation had made previously on a certain topic and it had caused a lot of bad feelings in the community. And I, when I uncovered this, I, I brought it to Don and I said, I, I see two paths to handling this. We either never touch this subject again and we just go in an opposite direction or we have to double down. We need to help heal the community about this. I know which one I want. Which one will you back me on? And he's like, we have to lean in. We have to heal. And and was that the one you wanted as well? Absolutely. I figured it was going to be. Just thought I wanted to make it. Okay. And so so how did you double down? That is how we first, the first role of convening that we did that led to um, really measurable forms of collaboration. So I just started, like anything, calling up players in the community that had been affected by our missteps. And real quick, you're a national organization. So when you say players in the community, you mean the community of service providers or families and children, and you're literally like connecting people from all over Correct. the country. And other patient advocacy leaders that have been affected by this. Also industry. So I'm talking about pharmaceutical business leaders. This was a widespread malignancy that we caused. And so um, most people didn't take my call. Wow, really? Wait a minute. Most people did not take your call. People were pissed. And, you know, and I could understand wow. it. What I had on my side is I was brand new to the space. I, I understood the space because of my clinical background, but I was new. So I could say I, I truly wasn't a part of, but I want to be part of the solution. One person took my call. And this is an incredible advocacy leader. I think you've spoken to her in the past, Kari Rosbeck. And she, you know, has incredible truth about her leadership and she is fiercely credible in the space. And she took my call and she listened to my intent and what I wanted to do. And she said, how can I help? And I'm like, would you join me in some of these calls? Because they might take them if you're on the call with me. Collaboration immediately, right? So we ended up then pulling 15 organizations that represented, again, clinicians, patients and families, industry came together. And um, I, I just stood up and owned it all, owned what we had done, said, is there an opportunity to move forward as a community and stop talking about the past, right? Because that's not helping these children and families. And people had to say what they had to say, like anything in life, like, let's just have an honest conversation, got it out of their system. But then everyone rose up and said, I think we could really move forward together. And so then the, the foundation really kind of provided that framework. So one is a convener. So we held the conversation. And then when the group, we didn't come in with the agenda, except we want to have this conversation. We allowed the conversation to organically happen and for the participants to say how they wanted to collaborate moving forward. And then we provided 
the project management and kind of the fuel behind getting those deliverables done. We basically had to walk our talk. So that launched what was called, what is still called Infantile Spasms Action Network. At the, so about 15 organizations that first year, second year it grew to about 20. Currently it's about 36 and it even has international organizations. And the main deliverable is to drive awareness. Infantile spasms is a very rare form of pediatric epilepsy. And the first signs are picked up by parents, typically around six months of age. And it can look like your baby's having an upset tummy or is just doing weird movements. But if you can intervene quickly, get them to the right position, get the right treatment, the outcomes are much more obviously improved than if we wait, then these, these children can be really neurologically devastated. So there's an urgency behind that. And we wanna get as many people together saying the same message to create that awareness. And here's a great data point about this. So the second year of this, so the first year was talking and let's like spread the message together. The second year, again, people came together, let's talk, let's get very specific about what our message is gonna be. We developed a mnemonic, pushed it out. The budget for that was about 70 grand. Together with all these players, we reached 1.95 million people. Wow, really almost 2 million people with just 70 grand as a budget, wow. So clearly the, you know, the deliverable there showed the power of collaboration, but the undercurrent of that was a healed community. People willing to talk and lean in. And the, there has been just multiple examples of collaboration in that space since that. Hmm. Wow. And, and so, um, so I'm assuming after that, people took your calls. Somewhat, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And and so so obviously like now you're getting some traction and and I know I know you said okay we've had numerous collaborations like that but now you're getting some traction how did you how did you leverage that traction I think the first thing is always you know what is your intent behind it right I do think mm-hmm. uh, now I hope I'm going to be concise in this answer I think sometimes leaders go from getting punched around to getting a win and that feels good and so their traction is to keep feeling good and perhaps Mm -hmm. had the ego, perhaps get some visibility. Um, I credit my board. I credit the fact that we establish organizational values. I credit my clinical background and I credit my own personal values that the intent and the traction that we got was how can we create more change? Where's the impact we can drive? Where's the biggest issue we see? And let's not be afraid because that's the thing is we weren't afraid to go to where the wound was initially. Let's keep doing that. And I think, you know, we've we've done that in the areas of transitions of care. How do we help move pediatric patients out of that system into the adult healthcare system? We've done it through um, SUDEP, so sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. We, and I can go in on so access to treatments. Um, and I think the community continues to see that we operate. We collaborate not for a win for us. We collaborate for a win for the community. Mm-hmm for everyone. And we really, you know, someone asked me the other day, like, why did you start saying rising tides lifts all boats? But I started to say that in 2018. And I swear to you, I had just had my second baby. And I, maybe I was just like very hormonal. And somehow I like thought of that. But 
I was speaking at an advocacy conference that had a lot of nonprofit leaders and I was talking about collaboration and I was talking about that collaboration is a vehicle to help us all thrive, right? If we do it right, everyone wins. And that rising tide lifts all boats has really just become a, a mantra at the foundation. Nice. And I will say, though, I mean, I think a lot of us in the nonprofit sector have gotten jaded around collaboration. Well, I think people like to say collaboration, but they don't really mean it. Right. So so, so how do we take it from um, lip service to actual service? So I, I'm single. I um, like to put it in the metaphor of dating. So you can say, I'm going to collaborate with you, which is like, I'm going to meet you for coffee. And a lot of leaders stop there. It's just talk. If you really want to collaborate, if you really want to date, then we've got to do a project together, right? We've got to actually like go on a walk. We got to do something together that I can literally figure out what you're made of. What am I made of? Let's, let's get into it. So we always, when we say we're going to collaborate, we do it around a specific project where it's all hands on deck. There needs to be financial transparency. Uh, roles and responsibilities are outlined and you get work done. And I think when you can do that, again, everyone wins, right? You're winning because you've got a deliverable. You can put your teeth around. You're both getting visibility. You're both getting financial rewards. But you both have to want to move the relationship to that next level in order to do that. And if you just want to have coffee, that's super cool. But let's not call it collaboration, right? Yeah. So so tell me about a time that you started with that coffee and then you ended up working on a project. Yeah, here. Okay, I'll, I'm going to do it around our annual education initiative. So also, I'm like the absolute, I'm big on like, own your strength and own your weakness. One of my weakness, I can't name anything to save my life. I come up with the worst titles for things that people are like, I don't even know what that means. But it like, that's makes, me, by the way. You do it too? I do. I do. Where I come up with names and people are like, um, Dolph, we're going to hire a marketing firm. My team is always like, eh, I don't even know what that is. So, um, so I say an annual education initiative, but really what that is, is we do a national needs assessment. This is another form of collaborations. Like literally everything we do at the foundation is collaboration. So we do an annual needs assessment to patients and families and to clinicians. We do do that because primarily, I think it's, if I want to be totally honest, it's because I'm a nurse by training and I need to assess and I need to get data before I build that plan of care. So we utilize this data to then shape our program priorities. And we can push it out to our audience, people that follow us, but my gosh, we're not touching everyone. So we then go out to our partners and we say, hey, will you also push this data out? And then not only are we going to get it, we're going to share the data back with you. Why should we just get these insights? So we, we are able then to tap massive amounts. So our, our needs assessments usually come back with like 2,000 plus data, set, right? So like, that's insane. Our board then will look at this data and say, okay, here's a pain point. Let's do an education initiative around X. So I'm going to talk about um, right now shortening the diagnostic odyssey, which again is too many words. What we're trying to say is we got to get these kids diagnosed quicker. And a lot of times that means we need to do genetic testing or whole genome sequencing. This is an issue that affects everybody. We can do, because we have, we are the only patient advocacy organization that's governed by physicians we have access to physicians and can educate them in a way that other mm -hmm. nonprofits 
um, have a little bit more difficulty getting in front of. So we'll say, hey, we all saw this was a need. We've all shared this data. We're going to do an education initiative that's focused on patients and families, but also in clinicians. Who wants to be a part of it? That means we're going to build the curriculum together. We're going to have you come in as speakers. We're and so we started that. It's another great story. We started that back in 2015. Mm -hmm. And people told at that time I was still interim CEO. And people told me I was nuts. That clinicians, for example, would never want to be educated by families. They will only be educated by other clinicians and scientists. And I said, I totally disagree. And they said, uh, yeah. well, give me X amount of dollars and you can do it. And I said, so I'll give you X amount of dollars. And what am I going to lose? I'm going to get fired. I'm the intern. Like, what do I have to lose? Except I'm going to show you that this actually works. Like, bring it on. So it was incredibly successful. And so that went from we had, I want to say we had four partners that first year. That means clinician membership groups, patient advocates, and industry. We now have, we do three of those, three different topics a year. And we have over 30 partners on each of them. So it's it's the same thing. Like we start dating over like, do you want to be part of this needs assessment? Do, because do you actually want to understand the issues or you want to talk about the issues, right? And if they're like, no, I want to understand. Let's get a little dirty. So we go, so then we get to the survey together. And then do you want to be part of the actual work of advancing, you know, the education around the need that we've identified? Got it. And so the next thing I've kind of have to ask is, have you had coffee, started a partnership, and somewhere in the first few weeks or months, you're like, oh, yeah, this wasn't such a good idea. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm divorced. I'm what divorced. does that look like? <laughs> I know what that feels like. It's not fun. It's it's <laughs> painful. And it's... um. Yeah. What I've learned is, because I'm such a Pollyanna, just intrinsically, that I will be like, well, that's a red flag. Oh, maybe it's really not. And then, you know, seven mm. more red flags pop up. And I have been slow in the past to approach it. Now, first red flag, I approach it. And it's, again, it's because it's based on a relationship. And that's a different mentality. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of resources. But when you're really committed to collaboration, which is one of our four core values, so we have, that's just in our DNA at CNF, then mm -hmm. like any relationship, you got to go to the person and you got to say, hey, uh, this feels icky. Like, is this maybe miscommunication, right? It could just be misperception. It could be something's going on in their organization I don't even know about. Their priorities have changed. But yes, we have had to break up with some partners in the past. And, you know, the response has been all over the board. Some have said, I understand why you're backing away from this and what can I do to re repair? And then we go on kind of a, you know, journey of that. We have some that there's no ownership and that's more telling. Um, but I guess in some way, so I had this, I had this professor. Jennifer Talbert, uh, sophomore year, communications class. And she said to me, we were, we were doing like persuasion, persuasive speeches. And she was like, my gosh, you have no shame. I said, 
yeah, I do. She goes, that's the wrong word. I remember that she goes, that's the wrong word. You are brave in terms of you are okay to have a difficult conversation. And I was, gosh, I don't know, 19, 20. I, no one had ever talked to me about that. And at that point, I, what hard conversation had I had in life? But it stuck with me. I don't know why I'm okay to have hard conversations. I'm also mm-hmm. very okay to be like, well, I just totally messed up. Like, I got no problem being like, my bad. But there's something in me that allow that I, I'm starting to see contributes to our ability to collaborate effectively. And I would encourage leaders to, you know, you, you got you got to lean into hard conversations. Yeah. So when you've had those conversations, in your experience, what what elements have you been able to bring to the conversation that's helped those conversations succeed? And what elements maybe have you brought that you're like, hey, yeah, I, I probably won't <laughs> do that again? Um, so succeed, you know, you come with a posture of curiosity instead of judgment. I want to understand. I always assume it's not that someone, and I'm saying someone, but, you know, that they're out to get you. It's more of like, they probably got some stuff going on. And so that helps. And typically people are like, oh my goodness, I had, I did not mean it like that, or that was not the intent, or we dropped the ball. How can we fix it? Um, and I think that kind of posture of I'm not coming in guns blazing allows for that larger conversation to happen. I think now eight years in, something I have to guard against is if there, if I'm working with an organization and the leadership and I just, our personalities don't match, it, it just, it's it just not aligned. That doesn't mean the collaboration can't happen. It means I need to be a little bit more aware. When there's just a personality rub, I have to navigate that conversation differently and be a little bit more aware in it. And I think in the past, maybe I haven't. Hmm. Got it. Okay. That's fair. That is very fair. Well, Amy, I, I am, I'm keeping a quick eye on the, on the clock and I've got to leave time for the off the map question. And so I know you reside in Kentucky, which is not world famous for its pizza. But I also know that you love pizza. I love pizza, pizza. yes. So help me reconcile this a little bit. Like, what cities do you go to for great pizza? Oh, okay. Um, Well, anywhere. (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I love pizza so much that I'm not like a snob at all about it. There's one frozen pizza that I don't like just because their sauce is a little too spicy. But um, uh, even though I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, so a lot of people think, oh, I love Chicago style pizza, but I actually prefer New York style pizza. So I would say New York. And and I'm going to show my ignorance. New York style pizza has a thinner crust or what is it about New yeah, York style it's pizza? Like, it's like the big triangle. It is thinner. There's a little bit of a crust at the end, but you, you like roll it, you know, so you kind of eat it like a taco and, you know, the grease on the chin. Like, I just like the whole experience of it. You know, you're like outside after a couple of beers, like you're, you know, it's just like that whole scene is very fun to me. Yeah. And, and, and so, and it's funny because I, I know I've had pizza in New York and I know I've had pizza in Chicago, but for the life of me, I, I can't be like, okay, here's how the two are different. That's why I asked. It's like, okay, how's that different? Yeah. Well, in Chicago pizza, you know, it's really thick. It's like a brick and you need, you need utensils to eat it. 
it's a little bit more work. It's a little bit more formal. It's heavier. Yeah. When I think Chicago, I think I think um, hot dogs. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's what I think. When I think Chicago, I'm like, oh, yeah, really, really good hot dogs. Have you ever been to the Wiener Circle? I've not. And I guarantee you've never heard someone on your podcast say Wiener Circle before. No, I haven't. I love that. <laughs> this is the first time. <laughs> well, it's a great, great little restaurant kind of, sh- I don't want to say shack in a bad way, but it's just, it's like a pop-up late night. It is the best hot dogs in Chicago. You're, wow. Next time you go. Okay, I will check it out. Um, I will share with you that there's a there's a book that I often use before I travel. It's too thick to travel with. It's called Where Chefs Eat, and 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 essentially, it's an amazing book because it um, the the editors just go to world famous chefs and say, when you're in this city, like when you're in Chicago, where do you eat? Yeah, and it's it's not all like five hundred dollar a plate meals. They're, they're, so I actually went to this one like shack hot dog place from that book, and I was like, oh my gosh, this might be the best hot dog I've yeah. ever had in my life. And and it was served to me in a in a dripping paper sack. That is how it is at the Wiener Circle. Absolutely. There's something, is there something so raw about an experience like that? It's so human and real. And it's like, yeah. I would much rather have those sort of experiences. Oh, yeah. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a great experience for me. And I've learned a good little bit, as well as, quite frankly, had some motivation about maybe some ways that I could be approaching collaboration differently in my own life. So thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun to meet and chit chat. And of course, listeners, you undoubtedly want to know how you can find out more about Amy and the Child Neurology Foundation. So it's pretty simple. The URL is childneurologyfoundation.org. And when you go there, you can learn more about all the collaborative collaborative resources they offer. You can also gain some real insight into their nonstop partnership mentality. One of the reasons we really wanted Amy on the podcast is we do believe in the power of partnerships and collaborations. And this is an organization that is baked it into their DNA. I'm not going to say it is baked. They have intentionally baked it into their DNA. So make sure you go to childneurologyfoundation.org and check them out. Amy, thank you again for coming on. Absolutely. Hope to do it again. Thank you. So friends, let me just share with you, if you found this conversation useful, if you got something out of it, there's two other episodes you should consider downloading and listening to. One is Solving Problems with Unlikely Partners. Leah Garces has joined us on that, and that was episode 150. And that was kind of an amazing one because um, she runs a vegetarian organization that actually was partnering with farms like that raise and slaughter meat. Um, So it was kind of a really very unlikely partnership. And then another one you should consider is episode 189, Coalition Building Can Help Your Nonprofit and Your Cause with Jim Neal and Padia Mixon. Finally, listeners, please do me a huge favor. While you're here in your phone, go ahead, click on this podcast, rate it, like it, subscribe, and review it, please. That will help other people find our podcast. And that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers always make me say this. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group. Guess what? You knew it. Provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. We just don't do it. And that's why this, this entire episode and the entire podcast is, is for, well, informational purposes only. I would not suggest that you rely on a podcast or someone on a street corner or someone in a subway car for accounting, 
legal, or tax advice. So if that's what your organization needs, please, please find a licensed, qualified professional and get the advice you need. And if you're not sure what type of professional to reach out to, or maybe even who you could reach out to, you can always contact me and I'm happy to help you think through that.